0: Everybody, how you doing this is Danny Anderson thanking you for listening to another episode of the sectarian review podcast and uh, and speaking of Satan uh, we got C. Derek Varn back on the show today hi how you doing Derek
1: Okay. The, the the number of different groups who think I am a satanic figure is kind
0: of interesting. <laughs> you know, I'm just joking. You're, you're one of my favorite people, obviously. Um, uh, it just came to me as, we were, as I was finishing up the song there. Um, so Derek is back after a long, long time. It's been a while since you've been back, probably to talk about a, a Tarkovsky movie, I imagine.
1: Yep, uh, it was. <laughs>
0: and uh, so today we're going to talk about one of your own uh, works of art. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, a new book of poetry that Derek has written called Liberation and All the Other Bright, etc. Uh, and come to think of it, I believe Nostalgia was the last uh, movie that we talked about uh, yep. by Tarkovsky, and that's very much about a poet. And so this is actually kind of a fitting uh, to have you back in your poetic, uh, you know, form.
1: <laughs> yep, it, it's it's kind of about Tarkovsky's dad, but anyway. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, exactly, right? Uh, and actually use some of it. Elder Tarkovsky's poetry in the movie, right? So, well, as you know, uh, Danny Anderson here. Um, I really enjoy, it's been a while since I've done, I haven't been keeping up with the podcast as much as I had been previously. A lot of it is sort of like life situations. For me, has made things kind of busy. And I found recently, I'm getting back into it, that despite the work of doing a podcast, uh, which is what I've been avoiding to sort of save mental space, in doing that, I kind of feel cut off from community. Uh, and so one of the things I really enjoy, there's a, a strange kind of paradox to doing podcasting. It's very busy and it can take over your life. And make it seem like you're kind of losing out on some of life. But at the same time, by not doing it, I'm missing out on talking to wonderful people like Derek. And so, I want to uh, uh, continue to do more podcasting. And particularly, I want to put a call out for people who are artists and and creators of of whatever genre. If you have something you're working on, by all means, reach out to me. I'd love to talk to you about what you're doing. You can find me on Twitter at Danny P. Anderson. And, uh, And... by all means, it'd be really easy to get you on the show. Um, and so I'm really happy uh, to talk to anybody out there who has something interesting and creative that they do. I think the world needs more of that. And I'm really happy to have uh, Varn back on the show. Derek, now I know that... Um most people kind of know you as a political commentator uh <coughs> podcaster you know king of all leftist media <laughs> and uh, uh but and i think i think most people kind of know about the artistic side for of you but uh, this is something i think doesn't get enough attention and so i want to kind of give you a chance to talk a little bit about um, art and particularly why poetry and as opposed to say short stories or other sorts of, um, artistic in, endeavors. Why is it that you're brought, uh, drawn to this particular kind of art?
1: Oh, that's a complicated question. Um, one, one is practical. Prose composition takes me a very long time. Um, I am a perfectionist about it and I also am an aphasiac. So those two things kind of don't go together. um, but also what i'm interested in doing lends itself more to poetry than to than to uh narrative prose anyway um because i'm interested in exploring um the the ways uh, ideas and um Pieces of memory and whatnot kind of float up, um, and you can do that in prose. Uh, you can think about like, like all the stream of consciousness uh, stuff starting with um, Mason Clare and going forward, but uh, it's. I often find that it's not as effective. Um, and the experience of my prose for people who've read when I'm not writing political crap, um, uh, is, uh, you know, there, there are a couple of my, uh, my essays and a few short stories actually out there. They're hard to find now. I mean, some of these things I published 20 years ago, um, they are, they tend to be both super dense linguistically and super cerebral. And a lot of people can't handle it. Whereas the poetry, um, you know, when I went into my MFA program in 2005, I was considered fairly avant-garde for that program. I'm no longer considered like super, a uh, uh, super avant-garde poet. Um, since, since I graduated, there's been, you know, uh, the kind of hybrid genre movement, which was this deliberate breakdown between narrative and avant-garde poetry. There's been, um, a lot of inclusivity movements. And I think most of this has been for the better. Um, even if sometimes it's totally mockable, uh, Mm -hmm. in like how niche it is. I mean, one time somebody sent me, a a call for a, uh, Queer of Color Neurodivergent Literary Journal. And I'm like, I'm, I'm, I think that's great. Uh, I also think I made a joke about that when I was being kind of a jerk in 2005. But um, so, you know, I, I have a different spot in, in kind of the literary world. And um, I'm actually been told that i'm somewhat accessible for a poet that is not concerned about being accessible at all um i would agree with
0: that actually there's a there's a way in which this is not like you know one of my favorite poets is mary carr and her her, and her poetry is very sort of um easy on the eyes right it's it's sort of um it's uh it's much more kind of like uh it's easy to kind of understand what she's saying kind of right. Um, Your poetry is not that it's much more sort of imagistic and kind of dreamlike, I would say. Um, And yet there are definitely, it's definitely full of punctuated moments of being easy to follow kind of, I think. And so I I think you're, I think I would agree with that assessment.
1: I, I used to write a lot. I mean, before, before my first book, I wrote a lot of poetry that was a lot more deliberately styled than like Ezra Pound and Charles Olson. And, and I read the poet Alice Fulton, uh probably God, I must have been like twenty-two and I'm forty-one now, so it's a long time ago. But she took a lighter hand with all that. Now I don't have her sense of humor, and in fact one of the complaints from people that know me is that my sense of humor and my poetry is there, but if you don't know me, you will not see it. Um and they're always like, well, why don't you write more funny stuff? And I'm like, because, uh, I don't know, it doesn't really work for me. Um, but uh, I noticed her lighter hand, you know, and uh, variants of being very accessible and yet very willing to go to, you know, language. Poetry inspired places are um, deep image poetry inspired places are using analogous form, which is something I use a lot, mm. um, you know, which is from an essay by Charles Olson. I don't remember when he wrote it, but so where you you pull forms from. From like movements um, form is supposed to mimic. uh uh, natural arsonic movements, um, and not so much from traditional form of poetry. But it's not truly free verse, and that's one of the things I try to tell people that like most of my poems are written with constraints um, that are not necessarily obvious. Mm. And a lot of the times, my editors don't pick them up. Mm. So like, um, so so there's that. Uh, so the poetry for me is related a lot to the way I experience the world. Um, I haven't talked about this publicly, but in the last couple of years, I've been diagnosed with what everybody in my life would tell you was obvious. If you knew me, is that I have pretty severe p- uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. And a lot of what I do with poetry is mimicking um, fractal memory recurrence and, and stuff like that. You know, what people kind of called triggering Mm. um but not just in the like anxiety or or, our our fight-or-flight way but also just the way in which sometimes the associations that one has uh, are not always particularly stuck in time and that's another thing i found unable to communicate easily in prose and when i would try to and there's an essay i wrote called apologia infractal and fragment which uh i wrote Oh, it Must have been 2007 and it's been published a couple of places um, I republished it on my own place because I couldn't find where I originally published it Where I tried to do some of the same things in prose form and I find it's just harder to read um, So Yeah, I mean it just it's it's too stream of conscious. It requires too much reference um, and one of the things I try to do in my poetry is it's dense with references and illusions, but they're not essential that you see them or get them.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, I don't care if you get a lot of them. It's not, they're, they're kind of, there, kind of as Easter eggs, kind of as something to unpack over time, but you can completely understand the poem without knowing it. Um, and I've always been frustrated with poets that are too, elusive I always think of like I was listening to listen to this podcast called the history uh, history and literature it's a great podcast I um, I actually patronize it at a fairly high level um, and um, they were talking about Nonus. now I don't know if you know Nonus. Um, no Nonus is a fifth sixth century Latin poet stuck between pagans and Christians and one of the complaints that people have about Nonus. um and both his paraphrase of the Gospel of John and his Dion- Dionysica, which is one of... If you thought Dionysus was unpleasant, and Bacchus, if you read this, it's like, oh, Dionysus is a jerk. But, and it, and it's like five times longer than than the Iliad and the Odyssey. It's a huge thing. Um, but the reason why people hate it, who study it, and it is hated um, by a lot of people, is not even its moral qualms, but the the fact that, like... You pretty much have to know the entire corpus of classical mythology and literature, half of which is lost to us. Sure. So, you know.
0: Yeah, and I have Google, right? So, I I actually one of the things I enjoy about reading your poetry is sort of I, I enjoy kind of. There's a word I've never heard before. Let me look that up and see where, where it takes me. I, I that's kind of, I, do, you talked about like fractal images and I really do kind of experience your poetry in that way. There, and me, to me, they're little doorways into almost like a dreamscape, right? And then, and I have to kind of relearn reality a little bit <laughs> to, uh, to understand the dreamscape. Um, and that actually leads me to a question that came to me was you, while you were talking about the subconscious and, and that sort of thing in poetry. Um there are people who would find a contradiction between being a Marxist and being into Freud right and and being um uh and, and being into in- psychology, in psychology right and i feel like I, I don't hear you talk too much about psychology in your political writing, but I do feel like poetry is a place where you maybe use the psychological as a yeah. uh yeah, so why don't you talk a little bit about that
1: um so I pull a lot from psychology. I'd actually say Freud's not the place to go for what I'm doing. Um, I pull a, pull a lot from modern consciousness research and then some classical phenomenology, um, which you know I think is sort of the thick description to the more abstract description of, say, neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I pull a lot of stuff from... Um, uh, there's a lot of dream imagery and a lot of there's a lot of thought put into the way dream memory and uh imagistic associations interplay with each other and the way dreams often contain parts of memories but memories are also reconstructed every time we pull them up and um there's a there's a deliberate metatextualness where like I am throwing so much at the reader um with these images that they have to sort of try to experience them as they as they bubble up um, now, as far as like its relationship to my political stuff, it's actually interesting because one of my main criticisms of Marxism as a tradition like the entire tradition as it marks assumes uh a lot of the human subjectivity uh, based off of kind of hegelian assumptions mm-hmm. um, he talks about aggregates he talks about collectives and and they're not really the same thing in him um uh, a collective is more conscious it's more now that's not the word he uses even in german but uh, like the thing, the 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 thing for itself versus the thing as itself is a distinction that is taken from German idealism into Marxism. Um, but what I push on a lot is uh, there's an unclear understanding of the relationship to the subject and its relationship to, ma- to its material conditions. And what is clear for to me anyway, if you read Marx's early writings is uh, he thinks that there is such a thing as species being. So there is a human nature, Mm. um, but the human nature is always modified by its immediate social context and even changed by it, which I think is true actually. I mean, I agree with Marx with this, but I, I think that because of various fads uh, of in science at different time marxism has been itself predominant particularly in academia but also just socially um these other theories of mind kind of become the default for what they assume that species being is and sometimes it's freudianism um you think about the frankfurt school and the freud marxists sometimes it's lacanianism i don't even understand that enough to tell you how that works <laughs> um I've spent years trying to get get on how they square that circle. Sometimes <laughs> it's structural linguistics actually substituting for a theory of mind, um, particularly if you hear about structural Marxism. Uh, and sometimes it's like very vulgar materialism or very vulgar class reductionism, which is not something, and I mean that differently from the way it's commonly used now, Um, I mean, the the idea that you can predict someone's mental state based off their class background or class position currently. And Marx actually clearly doesn't think that. Um, uh, He only thinks that's true in in aggregates and not in individuals. And so I've been trying for years to figure out what's the theory of mind that explains the difference between aggregate and individual. Um, Now... I don't write about that much when it comes to politics because it's an arcane topic. Um, uh, it's important. It's actually very important, but, um, it's not one that I think if you start, if you start your podcast off and you want to start talking about American geopolitics and you start with, well, uh, these these uh theorists that you're operating with have a nineteenth century theory of mind that is under people just gonna like. <laughs> um uh and I think the other thing that surprises people about a lot of how I express that is I do think, and I don't mean this in this stupid Youngin way, and I'm sorry, Youngins, if you're offended that I called you dumb. But um <laughs> but uh There is a way in which, like, religious symbols, dream symbols, um, religious allegories do speak to patterns of association and narrative in, in the mind, or they would not be so predominant, even in secular ways of thinking, like... Um, and yeah, there's radically different ones. And and one of the things that used to confuse uh, has confused both my editors actually, is trying to place the specific re- like religious reference they need to understand everything's going on. And I'm just like, you're not going to. Um, right. You
0: talk about Buddha, and then the first poem is sort of a quote from Jesus, right? <laughs>
2: yeah, there's a lot of that. Um, and so yeah,
0: there yeah they're, you're gonna have a, a confusing journey if you do that, right?
1: Yeah. yeah there's uh a, there's a, there's uh a, there's there's stuff in here from a bunch of different religions actually right. and um and that imagery and some of it's not also some of it's I'm kind of mean about like the poem um uh words of my perfect teachers you actually have to know like a specific uh book written by a specific nyingma buddhist sect right. to to know what I'm referring to um and there's there's a lot of uh mixture of Jewish and Christian references that are often actually in dialogue with each other. This one has a lot more um uh Buddhist uh stuff in it than the apocalyptics book thematically, and that's that is deliberate and, and part of it's related to the difference in topic.
0: Yeah, and you can hear Derek talk about that previous book of po- poetry, Apocalyptics, in a previous episode of this <laughs> He's Just go down out the feed. You'll find it a few years, years ago. ago. Yeah, you'll find it a while ago, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, no, I think it's interesting. And by the way, I am actually increasingly interested in Jung, uh, not necessarily as a, a person who wants to be a Jungian, but um, I actually think um, – I, I'm finding I'm finding his influence in certain areas of the culture to be kind of interesting, and understandably alluring. I would say, um, and so uh, I actually I would love to learn more about Young from you at some point down the road, not today, uh, but yeah. Um, I
1: read a lot when I was a teenager. I was really into Young. Young was actually my, because I, you know, you're presented like okay, I'm I come back. To the states, I'm in the South, and I'm presented with these very facile notions of psychology. Because you got to remember, in public school, I, I i took a public school psychology class. It was taught by like a social studies teacher right. who probably had one class in psychology once. <laughs> right, and um, and so I'm kind of presented like four paradigms of psychology at this time, and I think it would have been humanistic. Uh, Um, neurological which was just they were just getting those scans enough to actually say something concrete about that and this has been in the mid 90s I mean some of that science goes back to the 70s but it wasn't properly understood and then like we got taught the Freudian traditions plural um, not the American Freudians nor the Lacanian French weirdness but kind of the classical um, uh, Freudians and then Adler Mm-hmm. Um and Young was part of that, and I remember thinking, well, Freud is clearly making some weird universalizations about sexual hang ups that I don't see a lot of evidence for, despite citations and myth um that he's making to justify this. Um uh, but th- but this writing of young and you know, you also every English teacher on the planet, probably teaches Joseph Campbell, which is another young. So I got, I, I started reading a lot of that. Um And it's initially very convincing. I, I kind of think it has a pernicious effect on the culture because I think, I think it's a, it's a comparative mythology rooted in trying to like, it's post hoc, like the conclusions are already there. Mm. And then, there's all the weird readings of heterodox christian groups and you know we would maybe consider gnostic in the broadest sense Although that term is over overused um that so you know of course you know if you're a if you're a um a, a religious minority kind of hanging out in in baptist country um <laughs> this is appealing to you. So one of the things I did was to go to the library and read, like, as much of the collected young as I could. And I was, like, in 10th grade. So there's no way in hell I understood it. But um, it was interesting. Um, But I I have learned from reading Jungians is you can turn it into almost anything. You read Campbell, read Jordan Peterson, read um, some of the mythologists, and then i i started reading uh um umberto echo and um people interested in medieval semiotics and i was like oh yeah uh young's just wrong <laughs> like like yeah. uh, but it does have a massive influence on uh pop culture um and ideas around the way uh we talk about reoccurring symbols, the way we assume that those symbols have some kind of um, meaning. We kind of ignore the weirder stuff like racial memory uh, and stuff like that. That's in, it's in young. Yeah. Um. So, so yeah, I, I I'm fascinated with that, but yeah. I read a lot of it in high school and then, you know, I, I was, I was, you know, I was a, a precocious reader and, and kind of, poor so i was stuck to what was in the library and uh, i got bored with reading Anne rice over and over and over again <laughs> so um i started reading all this like scholarly stuff and uh you know I, I started reading nietzsche really really too young god i think i read nietzsche in 10th grade which which, which is a bad thing people <laughs> should not do that um people uh, friends don't let friends read uh, borderline insane philologists that young <laughs> um, understood. But, yeah. but
0: this, uh, this uh, reading appetite that you had, obviously his, and filled your mind with all sorts of perspectives on the world right and and I think that that really shows in your poetry here and so I, I want to kind of get into that a little okay. bit um at some point I would like you to kind of educate me more about uh, about Jung and um I you know my perspective on this is almost entirely from the lens of thinking about horror films um and horror mm-hmm. in general and so like Jung and Freud uh, are kind of interesting to me in that way um but uh, I would love but i have also I just want to toss this out there, and I'm not the first person to say this. I think the left does itself a disservice by ignoring the kinds of questions that Jordan Peterson picks up um, um, and through the lens of of Jung, right? I think the left um, should consider the idea of sort of personal meaning and and, and that kind of thing and and, and community that Jordan Peterson, of course – takes in a wrong direction but uh he's uh, paying attention to things that people do care about right and the left does mm-hmm. itself a disservice by just completely ignoring um that aspect of experience i think and so um, oh, i mean i don't know what a left leftist, leftist version is of young it. would look like but, <laughs> but <laughs> who knows but uh, but yeah. uh, i think it's, it's worth having the conversation at least uh let I me get back like, yeah. go ahead
1: No, I was about to say, I feel like when you say the left does a disservice, and I'm like, well, I mean, that's sort of what it does, (laughs) disservices the things. but
0: (laughs) We deserve everyone, (laughs) yes. Um, um, That's hilarious. Um, Well, let me get back to the service of your poetry book here. Um, And again, this is, I should mention, um, published by Mysterioso Books. Yep. Um and it's called Liberation and all the other bright etc.
1: And it um, already is gonna get a second printing. Like oh, it's like I we're... saw it's
0: on back order already, so
1: that's amazing. Yeah. That's really great. So they're printing um and so there's some typos in the introduction that will be fixed.
0: Well this is more valuable um, than
1: <laughs> this will be a collector's item. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was actually I mean, it wasn't a super big run, but um I was like, Wow, we sold out in like a month. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, no, that's
0: great. I want want to talk a little bit about it. But before I get right into the book, though, I want to start with the cover um, that Terry Tapp, I believe. Mm -hmm. Am I right? Did he draw the cover for this? Yep. Um, So I want to get to that in a second. Something when you were talking about your poetic inspiration process um, and how it kind of differs from other poetry that one might read, the idea of, of music comes to mind. And there are a, f- a few poems in here that I want to talk about later. You use the fugue form. Uh, and those kind of very clearly have a musical kind of f- an obvious musical form. When I read your poetry, I don't particularly hear music, though, unless it's, I can imagine maybe in some sort of post-punk, uh, like New Order sort of, or, uh, you know, Joy Division sort of a tradition of, of singing these poems. But uh, but in general, I don't think of your poetry is having a musical quality would you disagree with if you're me looking
1: that? for harmony and melody and that's not here
0: okay i know, i'm thinking more rhythm but um but well yeah but okay. but
1: but, but I, I write deliberately stochastically stochastic so like um the rhythms often ba- like this is gonna sound crazy but i often base the rhythm of some of these longer poems on on uh very complicated drum time signatures because oh interesting that's my background in music is drumming and i really get tired and in english you know most things are iambic because we're lazy and we do four four all the time or (laughs) four five if you really get a so it doesn't sound like you're sing-songing and i became really fascinated uh with non-english poetry uh, particularly in my 20s um and i got i got really into translating german and spanish poetry and i started reading a lot of you know you start off with the obvious stuff cuz it's easy to read all the japanese poems but then i started getting really into um korean poetry when i lived there and things that don't use the same metric scales so i have done a lot of work with with music in the sense of like I think if you I say I'm always telling people think Shostakovich or um or Stravinsky or something like that and pull out all the all the harmonies and melodies and what you got that's what I'm trying to work with
2: oh, okay. and
1: then I do a lot with the fugue form or that or that split form and that that is I mean literally based off Bach but like um that form it's not a form invented by me but it's one that i've spent a lot of time with now um and uh it's it's different uh, and in the first in the book apocalypse there's a lot of poems that are that are um in that are written uh in complicate in complicated spacing um where the spacing does go in and out of Fugue and rhythm um mm. uh and Um, In this book, I didn't do that as much, but it a lot more with the with the idea of being lost in something that is asking you to read it in two different ways at once. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, the poems are written where they they are supposed to make some sense reading it. Uh, column by column are reading it straight across. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: the straight across is the obvious reading and then the column by column is a more impressionistic reading and it is supposed to induce you know, kind of a it is supposed to induce a fugue. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I literally listened to a lot of Bach when I wrote those. I'm not even joking about that. So
2: um,
1: I have this real penchant for for uh, for, for Bach. Um, yeah. Uh, which is, um, strange because I actually don't listen. I don't usually base a lot of my stuff on Western music, but yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you, pretentious, you and
0: still. you and Hannibal Lecter, right? I mean, yeah. that, that's, yeah. that's, I'm just kidding. Um, but no, and it's interesting. Uh, at, when I was in terms of your process, I was curious as to whether you physically listen to music while you compose poetry. Nothing
1: with lyrics. Okay. But, um, because I find that song lyrics get into my subconscious and they'll show up anyway, which is yeah. a bad enough problem. Um, as a poet, you're like, "Oh, I'm stealing," and I don't even realize I'm doing it. <laughs> uh, but but uh, I also just can't concentrate. Um, but I tend to be hyper aware in in person, and uh, my coworkers would tell you this too. Like, um, if I'm not collaborating with you, I immediately drown you out. Um, and so that's how I operate. I'm constantly listening to, uh, to music. Um, I think even most pictures of me have headphones in actually. (laughs) So, (laughs) um, uh, and that's, that's a lot of what's going on there. Um, And I I drive my partner up the wall because I'll read and listen to music and or listen to even podcasts at the same time. And she's like, how do you do that? I'm like, I don't know.
0: (laughs) I couldn't do that. Yeah. Um, No, that's interesting. That's great. Um, Well, let me get, I think this is actually leading um, somewhat into my next line of questioning here. And I want to kind of talk more thematically about the book. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to begin with the cover art, which is um, really, it's sort of an abstract. um, Is a seller I'm sorry, what? It's a celery root. Okay. I was going to say it looks like a kind of human heart made up of like various limbs and, and body parts. Right. And so, but it's celery root works as well. So did you, was this his idea after reading your poetry or was this? something you Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. You know, the, the cover for my first book is somewhat infamous because it has <laughs> Trump on it yes. um, and it has not a, a darn thing to do with Trump. (laughs) Um, uh, and also it, it, it was deliberately made to look like a metal album, DIY cover, but unfortunately that meant the publishers thought that it was, uh, um, self
2: published.
1: So, um, uh, we wanted to go with something different. Um, so Terry got the collection, Terry, uh, terry i've been reading my poetry for a while and he's told me he was launching a press and at first he asked me for a few uh poems for a magazine that's gonna eventually come out and they do have those poems in there and then it was like yeah he's like you're kind of notorious for having a bunch of poems around and you're actually also notorious for not publishing them which is kind of true um i have something like 900 poems and i've published like a hundred of them um and it's partly, you know, the, the poetry market's uh, competitive, but partly I don't think about marketing them. Like, I'm often not that interested in it. Um, just probably bad when you're a writer. <laughs> uh, but um, and he was like, could you write me, you know, could you write me uh, a book? And then the pandemic happened. He's like, can you, can you do something with that? So I, I, I did what I often do which is take some things that already existed and then wrote a bunch of new stuff around that and then revised it. the beginning of the pandemic and I sent it to him. And, uh, at first he tried to commission a cover and then he decided to draw it itself. And then he sent me, it's like, I think the celery root that looks like, you know, kind of a pandemonium of limbs. There's a lot of pareidolia going on in there Yeah, where you can fi- It's so you can find faces. It does. It is kind of shaped like a heart. Um, but it's very organic. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like, I think that fits. And I'm like, I think it fits perfectly, actually. Like, that's, you know, that that's probably closer to what I'm trying to do um, than, uh, you know, a, me- a heavy metal album with Trump on the cover. <laughs> um, and uh,
0: It's like a heavy metal Sergeant Peppers is kind of what it yes, looks like. Yes, exactly sort of, yeah. what it was.
1: <laughs> um, and I've already told the story about how that cover happened and what changed with it. But... Uh, so, if people should go back to the prior podcast for that. This cover came from that uh, Terry drew this um, specifically for the cover, based off the collection. So, I didn't, unlike the last time, I didn't go out trying to find an artist and something that fit theatrically. You know, Terry Terry is a, a printmaker and a sculptor, and um, and he uh, I also clearly he draws and. Um, he decided to make the cover himself based on some of the imagery in the book, um, and I thought it was pretty perfect um, for what the book was about.
0: Yeah, and that's I, there's a little interview that he does. I assume it's yeah. him. Actually, it just says Mysterioso, and so I it's assume him. I assume it's him um, with you uh, in the beginning about certain thematic things that come up about being Southern and being kind of international in your experience um, but also the idea of sort of liberation and you talk a little bit about the kind of fragile state of uh, autonomy right Uh, and and how it's kind of always connected to interdependence Um, and and I feel like that's a really interesting um, note that this picture really hits really well and so I wonder if you could just talk a little bit thematically about the collection in that way.
1: Yeah, um, so I was musing a lot about a couple of things when I was writing this. It's something that's, that I've obsessed with probably for 20 years is in, in, in the culture, I hesitate to say just Western culture because I've actually encountered this in Korea too, although in the opposite direction. There's often a focus on, collect, on collectiveness versus individuality and Americans are toxically individual And blah, 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 blah. And frankly, I've always thought this was a bunch of bull. Um, And in fact, uh, I realized pretty young, just thinking about how learning works, that individuality in a very Hegelian way, and I didn't think, like, this occurred to me before I read Hegel, but Hegel actually articulates this, um, is only possible through the the interplay with others you don't learn language without someone else you have nothing to you have you literally don't really have a sense of self until you differentiate yourself from somebody else yeah um like at a very primal pj lacan however you want to get there but there's you know many ways we get there um self differentiation is dependent on sociality yeah and so
0: can i just interrupt before you get to the end so that is also Matthew Arnold, by the way. Um, if you ever read the Buried Life, that's exactly what that's about. But uh, but but go ahead. Um,
1: yeah, yeah. So you keep on telling me I accidentally <laughs> make Matthew Arnold points, even down to the way I use. I'm
0: I'm doing him. everything I can to, to like subtly and <laughs> get get him into the collective subconscious of society again.
1: But go ahead. Trying to resurrect good old Matty Arnold. <laughs> yep. Um. But uh. So I, I think about that a lot, but I also think, you know. This book, more than others, I mean, no one. The funny thing is, everybody keeps wanting to talk about how I'm a political poet, and I'm always like, mm. "Good luck with that." Yeah,
0: I don't see that's yeah as <laughs> the primary. I mean, it's, here.
1: it's it's like my poems might have political implications, but like, like particularly when I write about and and some other works where I've written more about like the opioid epidemic and what happened in the South, but but this work in particular, I'm like. Liberation here—it's—it's it's putting this idea of political liberation and this idea of self-liberation into tension with each other because um, the 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 question of interdependence and how you define yourself and what your freedom is, is 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 well how how is that relationship to others always kind of tying you back into something and what would it mean to be free. Without that and pretty much nothing like I don't don't think that word has any meaning without that 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 kind of flip side implied in it um, that you have autonomy, but there's something pulling against your autonomy other than just coercion. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not something that you can just, you know, cut out or ignore. Um, and it's also the reason why freedom as a concept of liberation as a concept for a lot of people is terrifying. Mm-hmm. Like, even if they don't realize they're reacting to it in a terrifying way. Um, and, and sometimes the people who talk the most about like, you know, there's the obvious hypocrisy around this in America, but who talk the most about freedom or free speech or liberty are are some of the most conformist, most repressed, least free people you will ever meet. Mm -hmm. Um, And that tension really interests me. And I I started thinking about it, you know, it's easy to think about this in terms of like political hypocrisy or whatever. And again, that's kind of boring. Mm
2: -hmm. Um, What
1: I started (laughs) more looking at was like, what's the, what is this trait between like being bound to someone through love and also being utterly um, repulsed by that because of the implications to your own freedom. Um, And when does that become toxic? Uh, When does it become a kind of toxic individuality? When does it become, um, When does it become Mm -hmm. self-limiting? When when does it become, you know, uh, really self-justifying? What are the limits? Why is this scary? And I kind of, you know, and if people are like, oh, these are themes I've heard in existentialism, you aren't wrong. Um, But I was also looking at, old buddhist literature particularly and some old jewish literature when i was when i was writing this um and they they actually wrestle with a lot of the same questions like uh in the words of my perfect teacher which is different than my poem which has the plural mm-hmm. uh they the the author who's one of the one of the codifiers of the nimimpa Ni uh uh Teben buddhist traditions um uh, talks about the impossibility of doing no harm
2: mm-hmm.
1: down to like, even if you're a vegetarian, when you plow the earth, how many worms are with their part. And, and I mean, he goes into excruciating detail about the impossibility of, uh, of, uh, living a, a har- a life without harm. And, you know, liberation in this context is liberating yourself from doing harm, but also being harmed. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a it's kind of a foundational paradox and particularly in mahayana buddhism they they talk about like well they vow to not fully liberate themselves until everything is liberated and nothing will be liberated completely as long as space remains right like so 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 the the level of ambition (laughs) that's being i mean you know Christians you think you're ambitious with your heaven like you were talking about people who think we need to transcend materiality totally before anyone can be liberated and that that, yeah. that is a long historical process that, that no individual can complete yeah. and so I started really thinking about well what the heck does that mean um, and I put that into dialogue with Christian notions of salvation and with uh, um, a secular leftist views of like revolutionary liberation. Um, And I think um, what I came away with was a probably for, you know, this, this will probably strike people somewhat conservative point, but um, that, the cost of liberation is always more than you're going to realize and it'll never be complete. And so your fear of it holds you back, but it also is probably more rational than you even know. Mm. Um, And I also think, I also think liberation ties in like that, that liberating oneself is traumatizing in ways that are not immediately obvious um and that you have to deal with that and you have to incorporate that back into yourself. Yeah. Um and so that was that was where the, the title poem came from and that was the emphasis for the book. And then the the, the, the rest of the poems are uh this po- this book more than my other book, um has a lot of things that I consider love poems. But I don't know that anyone else would, Um, particularly the super long poem, The Mirrors, Mm -hmm. uh, which is like, I don't know, maybe it's maybe like a third of the book. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that's about, you know, all the stuff involved in truly knowing someone else and knowing yourself to do that, that is. It's not I often think it's not just like it's not just a confrontation where you you really see who you really are. It's also where you really realize what you are not. Um, and that, as people age, particularly if you've been in a long marriage or I, I don't have kids, but I imagine I've talked to people who do, um, uh, if you've ever taken care of a sick person that you really cared about, the kinds of things that demands of you, you know, are not the things that normally show up in a love poem. Um, and I started thinking about the way that is how, part of how people liberate themselves. And so that all comes into uh, a play about like the way people, um, <sighs> the way people are unable to completely be free from the things and they don't want to be, and they shouldn't really want to be in all ways, um, and when they need to be, sometimes that's that's not just hard; it's actually it's actually self-shattering, um, and that's what I was interested in. And uh, uh, I, I, you know, somebody asked me recently, "Was this book darker than my first book?" Because my first book has a reputation for. Uh, I think wrongly but has a reputation for being pretty bleak and I was like well I find this book a little bit more hopeful but I actually think it goes to a to an even darker place um so yeah
0: yeah I would agree um with that actually the the, some of the images just alone are very kind of like harrowing and um and about like illness and 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 disaster and those sorts of things and um and so yeah for sure and before I kind of get into that as you were talking and correct me if I'm just reading too much into this or misapplying a concept but I'm reminded actually of our discussion last time about tarkovsky's nostalgia we had an extended conversation about that one plus one equals one uh, that's mm-hmm. written on the wall uh, behind the one character and and i I kind of feel like you're going for something like that uh, with this whole idea of interdependence. Um.
1: Yeah, I am. And it's actually my best friend, Sean Van Tine sent me (laughs) while I was in the middle of drafting this, actually, she, uh, um, she told me the rewatch nostalgia. And then she sent me the English translation of Arseny Tarkovsky's poems. And, and she was like, you don't write like this, but you're actually concerned with many of the same things. and, And uh, she was kind of right. And it's funny because it was like one of those times where I wish I could have said I was influenced by that when I wrote this book. But I didn't get that book until like a year and a half ago. (laughs) So, and I wrote this book the first three months. Well, some of these poems are up to four years old. But uh, I wrote, I I composed the book and rewrote everything uh, between March and July of the pandemic in
0: 2020. Okay, wow, that's interesting. So, yeah,
1: so it was. At, I, I it was commissioned right, but bo- like literally the month before the pandemic hit. Is yeah. it-
0: this is where you bring Young yeah. into things, though, right? Um,
1: I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I you're trying to
0: do. I'm not going to do it. I like um, um, it when
2: it's Matthew
0: Arum. <laughs> um, no, no, and I think that that's great. And honestly, and the, uh, can I begin with. The Fugue, there's I, three mm-hmm. prominent, like, obvious, like, Fugue-formed uh, poems in here. The first one is called Fugue in Green and Brown. And uh, it's on 50, if you're looking for it, and uh, in your book. And so, uh, and it really does, you have, like, basically three poems at once that you're kind of dealing with. You have one plus one that together equal a different one, right? Uh, and right. so, um, and I think in some ways that actually works as a metaphor for that, that form as you employ it here. Um, and for me, it's, I don't normally
1: read these out loud for that reason. Cause I'm like, I would really need yeah. three people on stage <laughs> to read them three different ways simultaneously.
0: And, and we don't have to read it this one out loud. We could we could save that for something else, but I just want to talk about the way that there's, you dedicate quite a bit of space in this book to that form, which is unusual. And, and I think that it go, goes into this idea of like voices in concert, trying to find their, individual identity together right in in Mm -hmm. a kind of communal activity a ritualistic communal activity in this case right
1: i'm going to be pretentious and mention that backteen was something i read in college and this is actually something i've been aiming for for a while okay um
0: with the uh, heteroglosia uh, are you going to
1: talk yeah, about heteroglosia yeah and yeah like <laughs> i love <I> heteroglosia
0: <laughs> <laughs> i went to english um, grad school remember <laughs> yeah
1: so, so did i um so that's when i read backteen um but uh uh but I when I when I wrote these yeah they're made to they you're supposed to feel uncomfortable in even how to read it, um, and the other thing I did and this may not be immediately obvious, but one way gives you a narrative, hmm. and a, uh, particularly in the Mississippi poem, um, I think it's called when I went to New Orleans I died there.
0: Yeah, is that uh, is that autobiographical?
1: Yes, that's true. <laughs> so
0: that's so you had a about. I, I um... had
1: a, I got. I had. Oh, okay, So when I was eight years old, I was taken to New Orleans, and I had uh, between leaving Macon, Georgia, and going to NOLA, uh, I went from having what my parents thought was a cold to having rheumatic fever, mm. um, and um, I was hospitalized upon arriving, at, uh, and this was during a Super Bowl. It's like an '88. Um, so everything was pretty much shut down. Um, and they, they, uh, they gave me a drug to, uh, to deal with the rheumatic fever and it worked. Uh, the problem was they misdosed me. They gave me an adult dosage. Oh dear. So my nervous system started slowing down. So after I get out of hospital, I'm feeling okay. Everything stopped. And my parents are taking me down into the French quarter and uh i collapsed and i coded shortly thereafter mm. like um uh i my heart stopped for something like a minute mm. um and uh i don't remember anything and it was actually a very surreal experience because um it was slow so i first my speech started slurring then i started losing feeling in my hands then, um, uh, then I start being unable to focus, and then uh, basically stuff started shutting down, um, and I collapsed. And so that's that's a, that's a true story. Mm-hmm. Um, n- you know, not every story in here is true, but that one definitely is. And uh, it's but I interrupted. What,
0: that's the narrative yeah. part of it, right? And there are yeah, other the
1: narrative part of it, and then and then the the impressions. Are actually read like yeah you can get impressions either way, but the impressions are actually meant to be read um, straight down the two columns, mm-hmm. um, and you won't get narrative from that, but you'll get a clearer sense of what is of what is being felt, and so that that form is is uh, that tension is deliberately there, and. And I, it's kind of it's kind of a mean trick to pull you to think that the narrative readings the most correct one, but they're actually both equally correct. Yeah. And so um, it's a trick I've used in a few poems before this book, but I used it a lot in here because it was thematically relevant when me thinking about, okay, like, how are all these pieces that seem fragmented coming together and do do they come together? Can they come together? Um, yeah, so Fug and Grieve and Brown, is about that in nature um when i went to new orleans i died there uh, uh, is about that um in in a childhood experience and then uh, mountain spirits is about that in a cross-cultural experience mm-hmm. so because um, it's it's about it's it's about uh shamanistic traditions that one encounters as a foreigner when like Hanging out in Korea and not understanding any of the context for what you're seeing, hearing, or even participating in. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that poem's probably the hardest to understand because it has the most like reference to uh, very specific places in South Korea. Yeah, yeah. So,
0: right, so, right. Which I'm so, yeah. I'm perfectly okay with. Right. It's sort of like <laughs> I said when you're entering a like I said I, I really. To go back to our initial discussion about dreams, and, and I'll bring Freud back, one of the reasons Lionel Trilling loved Freud back in that day was his method and his practice of interpreting dreams kind of mimics the way we engage with literature, which is in some ways an expression of a, of a social subconscious, right? And so, um, and so yeah, that I, I totally uh, don't need to know all the details about Korea <laughs> to appreciate the poem, right?
1: Well, one thing about mountain spirits that I think is interesting, um, and I almost forgot I did this, is uh, on one of those columns the references are generic and could even apply to places in the U.S., mm. and then in the other column they're only they're very specific to Korea. Mm. Um, and. Uh, you know, yeah, I guess Weiss wine isn't something you have in the United States all the time, and that's in one column. But if you actually read it, there's no formal names that are Asian in the first column, and then there's a ton in the second. Um, and there's little tricks like that. It, it's it's stuff I do like that that I think people <laughs> when I when I talk about how I pull from forms, like a lot of this stuff is a lot more intentional than it seems, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's supposed to the part of the reason why is also not just to invite the narrative but the question like what associations are going where why is this consciousness so bifurcated um what's the dialogue between the two um and so that that is definitely driving those three poems um So, yeah.
0: yeah. And I, I was drawn to them um, because I I enjoyed the form and I enjoyed the formal play, but I also did feel like they kind of captured um, the essence uh, of, of the, what the book is trying to do. Right. And so um, a a couple of poems, can I I get you to read one? Um, Sure. Well, and me, I I won't dictate which one I'll ask you to read, but um, I really enjoyed um, the poem, Aphoria. It's not 84. Um, The I, I don't know if I, I what I'm getting in my experience of reading it. I don't know if I'm dissecting it correctly to, you know, guess your mindset as you were writing it and your intention. But there's this sort of like um, posture we take towards the world about sort of having doubts and, 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 and I don't understand that, you know, it's sort of like the sort of like um, hermeneutics of suspicion. You might call it that we bring to everything that I think can be a little bit uh, destructive at times. And I kind of, that's, that's what I felt when I read that poem. I don't know if that's what you were going for, but, and or I don't know if that's a poem you'd like to read, but that is a poem. I can read it. Yeah. Okay. Thank you.
1: So euphoria, an arm for an arm leaves the world, particularly ill suited for arm wrestling. And yet we remain but men-in-arms, our person-in-arms, or at least our hands are stained with midrash and viscera. Our sidurum marred by dirt, our fingers holding imaginary vessels, little vials of pain, our laughter that shake our legs for domin- for davening. Our commandments are to forget, but we are not to forget. The tie that binds constantly unknotted Retied in more elaborate loops, we have imagined God holding the world in both the left hand and the right, but had had to watch them shoot skulls in the breach. We have prayed in times of war against the clatter. Rumor has it that God is love that cannot see God's hands. The cloud of unknowing is incurable. Rabbi Akiva is dead. We are, but tribulous loss, echoing, unfleshed, confused. I kind of think this poem's mean in so much that I start off making you think it's a joke poem. And I, then I was like, going to say that is sort of like,
0: desk. yeah, it was, that is the humor. I the humor is <laughs> obvious in that one, but, but go ahead. Yeah. Um,
1: but it starts humorous, but then like, you know, the, the punchline is not funny. The no, the punchline is like, <laughs> no, the, the punchline is like, no, I'm punching you in the face right now. But the joke was actually to disarm you for what I was going to hit you with later. Um, this poem is particularly Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it starts off with the you know the obvious play: if an eye for an eye leaves the world blind. Um, but what I go into is um, a lot of the seeming, and this is more clear in the in the Talmudic commentary uh you know and um and like you know the sayings of the father's kinds of judaism than it is in like christian's view of uh the old Testament. mother knock um but the kind of like uh god is the absolute authority but the rabbis are supposed to argue with him um and and the rabbis can bind him Mm -hmm. um i mean like if you if you uh there's the famous um uh talmudic story about the vessels where God intervenes against the consensus of the rabbis and the rabbis say, no, uh, we reach consensus. And God says, and so you did. And so you were right, more or less. Um, and that's there. But uh, r- me talking about Rabbi Akiva is very specific. Rabbi Akiva is, um, was a rabbi who, while crucial to the Talmudic tradition, is a key figure. Um, and has some relationship historically uh, to Christianity uh, that's probably apocryphal, to be honest. Okay. Um, uh, but there's also the fact that all the Jewish sources say he was wrapped up in the Bar Kokhba rebellion, um, and um, one of the final acts of the Roman uh putting down to that rebellion and then the, the the diaspora is the burying and beheading of rabbi
2: akiva. Okay.
1: Um so that's going in there. There's also uh some uh some inter Jewish Christian uh theological debate about the nature of God because mm-hmm. no Jew says God is love. Like we just <laughs> would never say that. Um <laughs> but uh the stuff in there about the left and right hands you read another poem with me where i talk about the yesahar and 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 all that you your sinister hand and your not sinister hand right uh and the dual natures of man which in judaism is con- is seen as necessary like like uh the left hand the left hand is not seen as evil um just because it does bad things it's actually that spirit seen as necessary to maintain the world um and so that's going on in there uh there's a lot of stuff though where i don't mention it because like man there's so many show-up poems but in a way this is a show-up poem like it's about like well given all the atrocity that people go through um what are you learning? Like, uh, what can't you answer? And if you want to believe in, in you know, some essential goodness in man, and in in in, in Judaism, that's there. Uh, you have to reconcile that with all the violence. And I think in Judaism, the, the general consensus is, and I don't mean this. To, I mean I know this is a, a predominantly Christian compass, and I don't mean to like really antagonize your christian uh audience but uh uh, we think theodicy is largely a cop-out like you can't like like it's particularly the ones where it's like oh well satan did it and we're always like well who created satan yeah (laughs) like and he's omnipotent so he knew like so you know like and and that's that's uh kind of um Kind of the 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 kind of theological debate, and it's one that's it's pretty prominent in Judaism. It's not just like Jews versus Christians, also Jews versus themselves, because um, this this question comes up in Job. It's definitely throughout the Talmud. It comes up in the Midrash, like how do you relate to this all powerful God, who we're also supposed to think at some level is at some form and way of benevolent and yet Everything is his and we leave and we live in this world and I mean and you know uh, There is a Jewish theodicy. It's largely kab- Kabbalistic and don't ask me to explain it to you because I don't totally get it. Yeah, um uh, but it is it is kind of this notion of the of the brokenness and withdrawal of God from creation um, and having to pull God back in as opposed to say original sin. I, I, interestingly enough, I think actually Eastern uh, Eastern Christians and Orthodox Christians uh, tend to have a similar view about the fallen nature of man, but no, no no notion of original sin in the way that you have in the Western Christian tradition, both in Catholicism and Protestantism.
0: Yeah, um, it's interesting. And in this sort of uh, dualistic nature of God that you're talking about, you're referencing here, I mean, it kind of relates to what you were talking about at the beginning with the kind of impossibility of doing no harm, right? It's sort of just baked into the nature of reality.
1: Right. You know, and it's... it's uh, and I start with the kind of absurd pun and joke in the beginning, but the, it's it, it is actually to get you like, well, why would that have ever been the case?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, um, the, the, this you know, the quote "problem on evil" unquote is, I think, a much harder question, um, even for people who don't believe in an all good, all in a, to- in a totally omnibenevolent God, um, and. Uh, I don't, you know, I think, I think it is enough for, it. I don't think it's anything anyone can answer. Mm -hmm. Like, um, and I I don't just mean that religiously. I also don't think secular people can really totally deal with this. Like, uh, and that's, that's something that I, I really think a lot about, um, is, um, you know for all the obnoxiousness that we can often as- ascribe to religion i have found that secular ethics particularly rule based secular ethics like deontology or um or utilitarianism uh are not just unsatisfying um and you know not they're also they also almost regardless of which one you pick you get into these aforas anyway Mm -hmm. So whether so if you want to take God out of that poem and talk about it just as like, you know, what what you think the good is, you know, is it utility or whatever? I think most of these rules eventually do get to an abductor you out of servum if you view them as rules. So um, I think a lot about how like why someone like uh, David Benatar, the antinatalist utilitarian who argues that basically we should stop life altogether because pain is worse than pleasure and life in inevitably involves more pain than pleasure therefore there should be no life um, I mean, which is a, a, a particularly bleak reductio ad absurdum I actually do think is is a consistent uh, reading of what utilitarian would lead you to if you have to like form a calculus where pleasure is good pain is bad figure it out well like pain wins right and so uh, so to me that's discrediting of utilitarianism in a kind of primal way but it's you know and similarly the obvious ones are deontology like how many things that you can turn into universal rules that immediately fall apart if you try to apply them at all like right you know lying well
0: Um, (laughs) yeah and for me I mean you know personally speaking the sort of paradoxes that life creates, I mean, that's sort of the essence of God and religion for me, right? It it isn't that there are problems to be accepted or rejected. Those problems are the source of the engagement with the divine. Um, And and that's kind of how I have come to terms with my faith. And, And I think it's um, you're talking about this, and I'm immediately thinking of Kafka, who you use in a uh, another poem. You actually use a, uh, a quote from from one of my favorite little aphorisms: "His leopards yeah, in the, the temple."
1: Entire aphorism. Yeah, yeah, I, I
0: love his I love his little one sentence aphorisms. It's leopards in the temple, and the the poem I want to uh, is called. I'm, I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce it. Hapax legomenon. Um, yeah,
1: hypex gammonon, which uh, means to be said precisely only once.
0: Yes. And I want to get to that. That's really interesting to me. Uh, I had to look that up, <laughs> but it's a really interesting thing. So Shakespeare in English is a lot as, is is the source of a lot of these mm-hmm. words that are only used that one time that Shakespeare used it and it's never continued on. But the, the, the aphorism that you cite in the uh, introduction to that poem is, Leopards break into the temple and drink to the dregs what is in the sacrificial pitchers. This is repeated over and over again. Finally, it can be calculated in advance and it becomes part of the ceremony. Uh, that, that's one of the kind of amazing paradoxes of, of Kafka. Like that's why Kafka is so beloved for me uh, is that he's just, uh, everything he presents is one of these self-consuming paradoxes uh, that makes him infinitely interesting to me. Um, and so I, I'd love for you, if you know that's a fairly long poem, so you don't necessarily have to read it, but I'd love for you to talk a little bit about it um, because it's a really, it's one of the more, troubling poems because you (laughs) talk about like cancer and illness, uh, um, in it. And so I'd love to know what your kind of thinking was, uh, in. in
1: Do you mind if I read this one? Cause I I don't know. I just didn't
0: want to, I just didn't want to burden you with it.
1: (laughs) Okay. Why stop at the ankle when you can render the whole bone, confuse the marrow for affection. You add lilac and lavender to the stew, make the awful fragrant. The morass slides down easier. The stew sweetens a bitter deal. This is how you write about cancer. Mostly, it's boring. Long periods of thin veins vomit fragility, and thus hard to write without clenched teeth of clichés, overcooked and mushed, nothing left to bite. There are no birds' entrails in the miasma. You feed me ether. Birds are dreadful, boring. Are dreadfully boring. Even the cormorants in jays that lounge in my poems find analogies to flight slide into the gullet like stale potatoes blighted by sunlight when they glue their inner nightshade churning your gut afterwards we sap love glut- uh, glutinous and viciously viscous dripping down the throat like okra slime you both feel full and a distance bone-white lightning fries the short-leaf pine sears the sap. I will say this only once, pain is pain, not a symbol. The desert grass reduced to straw with husk of, ribosome, of, ribosome, of rhizome roots. So the thunder brings kindling for our meal. The blood meal of our host is ourselves. You strip even the marrow... And in the end, as flesh boils up to water, our words linger in the air. In times like this, Serrano's Christ in deep amber of the urine allows us to see the shadows of the sacral, the tumor bursting mad of metabolic life. So one of the things that always obsesses me about cancer uh, uh for those who don't know my personal history i've spent a lot of my past several years dealing with other people's cancer i've never had it but both my ex-wife and my mother um have had uh, cancer um and my ex-wife's cancer which she survived knock on wood uh uh was um astounding um uh, i don't talk about this much but when we took her to uh, uh she got diagnosed in Korea, she had it cut off as a little bit of melanoma. Uh, four years later, we're in Egypt, and she has a swollen lipno. node. We send her to, the, uh, to a doctor. They send us to an oncologist. I knew things were bad when the oncologist comes into the room and hands me my money back.
2: Mm.
1: Um, then we sent her uh, to the U.S., um, and she had 100, uh, 124 tumors uh, throughout the lymphatic system and under the skin where the melanoma had hidden um, and, uh, it, it, spread super fast. Um, uh, but one of the things I remember about that is, uh, is how boring it was. Um, and by that I meant like most of her time and what was the hardest for her is, uh, uh, she wasn't in a whole lot of pain most of the time. There was pain in parts. They would sometimes cut parts of tumors out to get rid of that. And, and she would have all kinds of complications because they were doing immunotherapy on her, and so like she was literally like basically having her white blood cells attack everything in her body, uh, but the cancer first um, was that a couple of things uh, emerged from that experience for for her and for me that that left me one is you know cancer is almost an overabundance of life. It is life without bounds. It is cellular replication that is no longer following any rules, and because it's not following any rules, it will kill the host. Um, and the way you fight it, um, in almost all cases, whether it's immunotherapy, radiation, or chemotherapy, is poisoning yourself in hopes that that you will kill the cancer before you die. Mm. Um, and I started thinking about, about what it means to to deal with that and how like, not only is fighting it gruesome, it is often tiring, exhausting, like I said, boring. The, The thing that, you know, as a caregiver that you, that you deal with is your inability to do anything like, um. Yet you can you can be palliative, but you can't take an active role in this situation. There's nothing you can do, and and that that sense of uh, helplessness and also feeling like you're literally having to eat yourself. I mean, in the case of like the immunotherapy, this is quite literal. You're literally having to eat yourself to possibly survive. And yet, what's what is mad about this is it really is life unchained yeah. now why is it related to something you can say only once because i think it's something i, I you know there's nothing in that poem that said act, that actually is a hypex log but i think that's something that you can experience and come to once in life and um you won't get to it again and uh, uh because if you ever did it would be completely different i i, I think like this realization and then helping my mom through cancer, which I've been doing now for about four years because her cancer's lingering um, uh, is it is a completely it, it's it's that first shock of realizing what you're dealing with and realizing that like this feels evil and yet it is basically a weird byproduct of literally like like the tamarace that causes your cells to die aren't there so they're just replicating like mad and devouring itself and 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 that kind of metabolic insanity uh just just uh, occurs to you but then you're like yeah but it's weird because cancer is literally like almost having an overabundance of the very thing that makes your existence possible but now it's going to destroy you yeah and and so i thought about that and then i thought about how you cope with that because that's the the original kind of absurd scenario because it's something you have to factor in, and normalize, and and treat as part of your daily life, um, and if you don't, you're probably not going to survive. Um, and if you're a caregiver in that, you probably won't be able to you know, to be a caregiver. I mean, one of the things that uh, that I learned, you know, uh, help my ex-wife through cancer and she is my ex-wife, but um, is that marriages tend to die during the cancer now ours ours died afterwards but um but it was uh it changed both of us in a way that like it's like something once said or something much experienced you cannot undo and you also can't go through it again um but that routine, that absurdity, the, the leopards coming in to eat from the sacrificial vessels, like eventually you just kind of work it in. Mm. Um, and that tension was something that fascinated me. Like, you know, cause like all high Long Memons, and yeah, most of them are Shakespeare. There's a few others, um, are things that like, yeah, people never say them only once, but the fact that we even repeat them in Shakespeare indicates that that's not true. Mm-hmm. So there's this tension in the concept. Um, and that kind of contradiction, uh, the contradictions of all that, uh, poured through this. And and I think um, this book more than my last one. You know, both these books kind of came out of dealing with with cancer and travel and and a bunch of other stuff. But this one, I kind of I was more willing to go into the like physical. Guts of it, and there's there's stuff in here. There's stuff in this poems that make more sense if you read more of my poems. Some of the poems that I'm referring to by me are not published, so that's kind of a kind of an <laughs> kind of a jerk move of me. Um, but like uh, when I talk about like cormorants, cormorants are a bird because I'm southern shows up a lot because they're so weird. They, I mean, they're beautiful, but they're strange birds. They're all black. They, you know, they don't really look like normal fowl because they're kind of um, uh, and. And so there's, there's a constant, like I, a lot of my poetry deals with uh, my feelings about birds and like poems do it all the time, but I'm not, I, I'm not actually that interested in birds flying and more interested in how weird they are on the ground. Mm. Um, and, uh, and another thing is, well, I'm fascinated with birds. People might not know this about me. I have a phobia of them. Mm. Um, so I'm a birder, but I'm also terrified of up close encounters of birds um and so like so this is like a personal in joke that i always throw into my poetry that like you know i i'm fascinated with birds but birds are overused in poetry and like my fascinated one is weird because they actually freak me out (laughs) i think they're little creepy dinosaurs with soulless eyes and they want to eat me um and the only reason they can't is i'm too big um and so you know that kind of that plays with it but i'm also referring to um uh honorary or oracles and um, ancient Greek uh, tradition of reading bird entrails for divining the future mm. and so there's actually a lot of of uh pagan um and and also uh, shamanistic uh, uh, animal dismemberment in your uh, imagery about the future because I um, I always think that stuff is strange but the when I apply that to like a you know I think okay we're doing this to animals bodies and uh, unfortunately we've also done it human bodies at different points in different cultures mm. um, but uh, how is you know how is reading burden trails like trying to figure out a cancer prognosis um, and so there's these there's like layers upon layers of associations going on in this poem some of which I think are obvious and some of which are intensely personal mm. um, but yeah, I, I, this is one of my favorite poems I've written. I think I, I also think it's also one of the darkest poems I've written. There's not a whole lot. Um, there's not a whole lot of hope in that one. Um, because I, one of the things that I've also been fascinated with in my life and something I've experienced is like, once you deal with something traumatic, if it happens to you enough, you normalize it. Hmm. It becomes something that you assume uh, is an experience everyone else has, and when you realize it's not, you feel like you have this complete inability to communicate with them what you know, like what your what your worldview actually is. And I, I think this is a fundamental human problem. And yeah, you see it like between races of people and genders of people, but I think you also see it between individuals in a primal way that is a source of of uh, both the way people bond but also the way they're alienated from each other even if they experience or go through um the same experiences like i said i'm not married to to the person who wrote this about anymore and part of it is because both our personalities changed from the experience like we became different people um and you know it it would you know, um, it was very hard to recover from, and I, I think I think honestly, this is a failure of modern life in a real sense, and I know I don't have rose color glasses about the past. like I don't think there are times that are markedly better than now, particularly if you need something like I don't know antibiotics or if you right. have cancer, for example. sure. but um, but I do think there's a way in which certain kinds of communal life, uh may had ways of incorporating this in and dealing with this uh as a group and thus taking the weight of it off people whereas i think now we deal with it's kind of an isolated nuclear families at best or if in, as individuals at worst and the weight of it's all on you yeah um and that the routinization so there's also like mm. that that kafka invocation you know, as it's, it's, it's depressing as I'm kind of making it, I also think it's a sign of hope because communally mm-hmm. you do normalize it, you do figure out a way to incorporate it in. Um, but I don't know that you always do as individuals. So, right. yeah, there's there's a whole lot going on in that poem. Yeah, what you um, just
0: said actually reminds me of that um, Ari Aster movie uh, *Midsummer*, where the I don't know if you've ever seen that. Um, yeah, I've seen *Midsummer*. The 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 weeping scene uh, when the group like collectively weeps with her and sort of bears that burden with her is that's one of the unsettling things about that movie is the horror is actually kind of comforting, right? There's actually something beautiful in the horrific society <laughs> that they, that's one of the right. uncanny he, things about that movie, right?
1: Well, yeah. I mean that, that, that movie is about a society that is based on uh, b- both seeking out and also ritually reinforcing trauma bonding. Yeah, and actually, that movie was very much on my mind when I wrote this book. Um, Holy cow! So
2: <laughs> it's so, so weird. Um,
1: <laughs> okay. Um, because I, I was thinking about about that. I mean, uh, trauma trauma bonding actually comes up a lot indirectly in this collection, mm-hmm. and and by that I mean like the way people. If you go through something horrible enough with somebody, you will be close to them, even if you hate them, mm-hmm. um, in a way that you never will be. But I don't know that that trauma bond is healthy. Yeah. Um, it just is.
0: You you talk a, you talk kind of hint that throughout the book, sort of um, your identity as a Southern uh, American, right? And oh, so- yeah.
1: But, and I also mentioned Sherman. Yeah, over and over and over again. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right. <laughs> so
0: I would not say that that sort of the trauma of the South's you know defeat, uh, is you know, uh, is yeah, a good you know what I'm saying. Isn't
1: that the South got defeated? it's that the South kind of deserved it?
0: Right. Well, that's that's what I'm saying. I guess what I'm saying. I'm not saying that they're. I don't know. We shouldn't feel bad for them, right? Is what I'm saying.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. That's I, what I'm, I, that's I what explicitly mentioned that I consider this book actually in dialogue with the agrarian poets because I agree oh, yeah. with the agrarian poets that the South was the only part of the United States as a region that has lost and reinforced loss as part of its basic psychology. It is a culture of defeat to use the word of the, of the historian Rolfgang Um But um, what I, what I find fascinating about that, is I think even in the most ludicrously uh, pro-Confederate nonsense, uh, that there's a, there's also a sense in which yeah th- they're being disingenuous because they kind of have to know that um, they had to be defeated. I mean I, I see this I see this particularly in Faulkner like Faulkner's oh, yeah. total ambiguity about this
2: Absolutely.
1: about this. Um, and I see it in my own attitudes about, about the South. Because on one hand, I think like the Southern planter class should have been erased from the planet. And in fact, we didn't go far enough. On another hand, I objectively know that Sherman is one of the first people to violate the Geneva Convention, even if I think he was just. And then there's the, there's the ironies of his own stances. So, for example his diaries indicate he's a pretty horrible racist, but he, but he actually wants to keep the promise made to, you know, the former slaves and, and to the black, uh, to black Americans only despite his enemies. Right. <laughs> like it's, it's, it, it's not even cause he thinks it's good. He, he wants to go further than Lincoln in liberation, uh, just to like rub it in the eyes of of the people who put him in that situation in the first
0: place like in a conan the barbarian sort
2: of way (laughs)
1: yeah like you know and he's very different than grant or lincoln in that way you know um uh and when i was a kid you know even as a person i'm not from the same background like yeah my my family was uh is from is from the south but we're like french bulgarian jews and scotch Irish people like the scotch irish part i can kind of see but like my family by and large were not slaveholders they fought on both sides um members of my family i've learned fought on both sides of both you know both the revolutionary and the Mm. war of 1812 and the and the civil war Mm. um and so like and at no time can I find evidence that like none of them were planters or had huge plantations or any of that. So you were like, well, how do they get suckered into that? Um, and so that, that runs through this a lot. I, I think about, cause sometimes I think, yeah, the U S would be, w- would be better if like it internalized, some of its losses a little more. Um, but then I also think about, yeah, but in the South it's, it's, it's like inculcated the kind of schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. Um, to, To use a metaphor i probably shouldn't use uh mental health terms that way but i mean it is sort of like the paradox of people who think they're diehard american patriots but are literally waving the banner of a of an insurrectionary army against the very union that they're supposedly really invested in now and frankly they're only invested in because the Northern military deliberately put military bases down in there so that they would incorporate the South into the, uh, the Southern men into the army uh, both to pacify them, but also in case of another insurrection, they'd be already down there. Um, yeah. It's literally the same. It's the same method that uh, if you know about the, what the role of the Scottish and the British military and in British military enforcement, it's actually the exact, like the, the, the Northern generals were basing it off that. So, mm. So, you encourage them to enter the military with a sense of civic duty, but also, like, the bases are down there in case you get any uppity ideas after, after you know, uh, failed reconstruction. It's oh,
0: um, interesting. Gosh.
1: And so, uh, you know, have you ever wondered why all the bases are in and stuff? But anyway, um, they're, they're there for a reason. Yeah. Um, the And so, that leads to kind of paradoxical culture that I think we see more and more. And and one that has spread to way beyond the South, like like one of the things that I point out, like I, I I live in Utah now, and I've lived in the Rust Belt, and frankly, at times I when after the deconfederization of the flag in two thousand in Georgia, I actually was more likely to see a Confederate flag in Pennsylvania. I live in
0: Pennsylvania, and I see them right? everywhere. Yes,
1: <laughs> right that I was in Georgia, <laughs> yeah. and I was like, um this is beyond paradoxical. Like, yeah.
0: yeah, these people would, I mean, 150 years ago would have been like, you know, taken out <laughs>
1: and beaten right.
0: in the street for, for, you know, flashing one of those, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and honestly, my family for West Virginia, they crack me up too, because like that state only exists as a, because it seceded from that, <laughs> from the Confederacy. And right. so for it, them it, to, it's, yeah, it's like, yeah.
1: And yet there, it's the more, it's some more Confederate sympathetic state now yeah. than it's Virginia Pounder Park. I mean, that those kind of historical ironies just... Uh, we have debates here in Utah about, like, Dixie, which is this area in the south of Utah that has this weird fetish about being associated with the south. Hmm. Um, and, uh, uh, and I'm like, why? That's, like... Apparently there were some some slave holding uh people in the territories down there from Texas, but I'm like, you were never even a border state or a border territory. Like what what weird affection would would anyone in this weird completely different history of a state that has its own historical wars, um actually very many and fairly bloodless, but actual civil wars that we've forgotten about because there is uh The Mormon Wars, Mm -hmm. which very few people actually died in, but like, you know, it's a real thing. And like, and yet there's this weird affectation for the Civil War of which you are not a part, like... That's bizarre.
0: I, I mean, going back to where you opened this conversation, uh, I think, I mean, it, it's sort of the weirdness of identity and, and identity formation and how identity is not formed in isolation, in, in liberation. It's formed in interdependence, right? And so we have these weird shifting political alliances over the years that completely create illogical outcomes in terms of <laughs> of, of, of identity formation. And, and I think that... Um, yeah, it's this conversation has been kind of wide ranging, but it all seems to be circling around that kind of, uh, that idea. Um, so before I let you go, um, I really thank you again for sending me the book and thank you for this amazing conversation. I always enjoy talking to you. Uh, and this is no, no exception, but I was wondering if there was a particular poem that you wanted to share, um, before I let you go.
1: Uh, I'm torn between two. There's the, there's the crowd favorite anger song. Um, I think it's a crowd favorite because it's the one that's obviously political. Well, it but sounds like a,
0: it sounds like any one of your Facebook posts.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can see it almost as like one of your Twitter threads just transposed.
0: But go ahead, yeah. you can read it if you want. But <laughs> no,
1: but I think I want to do te- uh, teachings on severance because this is more about what the book is about. Okay. Um, and it's more of, uh, aligned to the other imagery, and so people can get a kind of feel for. How bloody this collection of poetry kind (laughs) of is. Teachings on Severance. One should have no love of pain, yet wrecked tissue rendered from use has its pristine shock. Freshly open, the joint of a javelina, splayed cartilage, perfect symmetry, slick white green, curvature like the arc of the sky. I understand the woman, tear-soaked, watching the frontal suture, fibers replacing with calcium-rich bone, calming herself with sacral breathing, steady hands stitching stitching each fleshy seam, we know corpses have their use. No necessary cruelty, no tram at all to seize sleep from the immaculate triggering. I would let her use my femur as a horn to guide ghosts and turkey vultures to dinner. When the floods rise, I hope Whatever's left on land can use the cap of my skull for a cup. Solace to be of use like a steer skull home to a hive of honeybees.
0: I love that one.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah. I I think the only thing I would explain is the imagery there in the middle is watching. uh, I'm thinking of when you have to do brain surgery on a child. Mm. uh, You have to um, stitch you have to re-seize re-se- part of the skull and you have to on anybody but you really have to on children because it's got to heal and um i'm imagining you know part of that is imagining i don't go into who the hurt is but i'm imagining like someone who's in nursing training having or you know who's got having to sit through that surgery and like live with what they're watching and, and like it's a good thing what's happening like you know like it's enabling life but it's so clearly traumatic yeah. like um yeah, and then I, you know, I, I, I like, I like where weird things bees live in. I don't know <laughs> what the, I'm always obsessed with like these ancient. You read ancient writings, and they talk about finding honey in like bizarre places and these weird medieval meat eating bees and stuff like that. So it's just uh, those kinds of that imagery is kind of throughout the book. Um, the teachings on severance is actually a reference to um, sky burial. And, uh, and, uh, certain, uh, again, Mahayana Buddhist traditions where like, um, you, uh, your last act, uh, is to, if you still have a corporeal body is to have it cut up, um, and used. And it, actually in, in, uh, Vajrayana Buddhist traditions, um, there is a tradition, I mean, actually like in Christianity too, and, um, where, uh, the, the bones that are left over are actually used, cleaned up, u- and used as ritual items um, for the ceremony in the future. Um, and again, that kind of calls back to, the, to the, the Kafka quote. But yeah, um, hmm. these poems are very much in dialogue. Some of the poems, uh, like the Anger song, there's another one called Dated. They're, they're more contemporary than that, and they're not all this bloody. Um, Yeah, But I
0: appreciated that. And honestly, you know, my, my father died um, about a year and a half ago now, mm -hmm. and he had arranged to have his body donated to the Cleveland Clinic uh, to be used to study. Um, And he happened to die during the pandemic. He didn't die of COVID, but um, Alzheimer's as it were. Um, But he, uh, but his, I know his body went to train people to do surgery, to Mm -hmm. save other people's lives. Right. And so they, the Cleveland Clinic sent us a nice uh, letter of thanks and that kind of thing. Um, and so that line of we know corpses have their uses, uh, I mean, particularly like kind of beautiful for me. And so, um, yeah, no. And, and it it is that kind of, I mean, it's a gritty, ugly reality of life that is also... Paradoxically beautiful and life sustaining, right? And I think that's one of the things that uh, you kind of hit on. And incidentally, I just love the line I would let her use my femur as a horn to guide ghosts and turkey vultures to dinner. <laughs> I just think that's what it's a great line. Um, <laughs> it's very, very cool. Um, well, Derek Varn, I will put a link. Uh, I know it's on uh, order There's a second edition of this coming out, uh, flying off the presses, uh, everybody. And so I will put a link to this uh, to where you can find this book at Misterioso uh books uh in the description of this podcast so wherever you're listening to this if you just look at the description you should be able to click on the link to find um that derek is also everywhere on the internet you have a uh a youtube channel that's going pretty strong YouTube the barn the
2: yeah they're
1: the same thing more or less some people like to watch uh more people actually well let me rephrase that more people superficially watch the YouTube than the podcast. However, more people actually finish the podcast. The numbers say, Interesting. um, uh, I mean, when you have two and three hour conversations watching it on YouTube can be a little bit boring, but, um, uh, yeah, I have a YouTube channel and a podcast. I have a Patreon, um, uh, where I talk about more of this stuff. Uh, but most of my stuff is available for free. So you don't feel like you have to go and get, I'm the worst at selling my own stuff. You don't feel like you have to go uh to the patreon. That's just you know if if you if you want additional stuff uh my podcast is about more than just leftist stuff, but you wouldn't know that um <laughs> because of how I got famous but uh, we're increasingly famous um infamous on the internet um the, in, we're increasingly covering uh more topics in education um explicitly we're talking about uh different ways to organize we're talking about art i'm interviewing different kinds of poets and editors in the future uh i'm doing a whole bunch of stuff with gene Wolfe, who's my favorite genre i don't i think he might be my favorite author actually like um i have this weird love of quasi reactionary Catholic writers. I don't know what that's about, but like, (laughs) um, uh, who doesn't. Yeah. (laughs) You give me, you give me like Neruda or Brecht. I'm like, uh, I know these people have closer to my politics, but I just don't like it. And then you give me like, oh, Walker Percy. Um, <laughs> uh,
0: that's why you're an interesting person. What can I say? Uh, and you're always, of course, welcome on the show. I know you're busy. I've uh, been hesitant to sort of uh, burden you uh, with you know too much time, uh, too much of your time, taking it too much of your time on for the show. You know, but, but I really you're the do. only person who talks to me about literature. <laughs> Well, anytime you want an outlet, anybody, anytime you want to talk about anything, uh, let me know. Uh, you're, you're always welcome to come back. Just uh, shoot yeah. me an idea, and, uh, and we will make it happen for you, my friend. Uh, Derek Varn, thank you again. Once again, the book is called uh, Liberation and All the Other Bright Etc. And uh, the author is C. Derek Varn. My name is Danny Anderson. Thanking you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast.